Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. I want to thank the American people. I want to thank the military. I want to thank law enforcement for our magnificent country. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, I've been looking very, very hard for the statistics that show how many times a day, a week, a month, a year, our police officers protect somebody. I can't find any statistics. So I looked for another statistic. How many times a day, a week, a month, a year, police officers defend somebody and keep them from being killed? I don't see that statistic either. What needs to take place in this country is the police departments need more money. There needs to be more police officers. The bad police officers need to be more easily removed. But the cities in this country are ensuring that they're going to die. Some will die quickly, some will die slowly. At the hands of the same people that have controlled them for half a century. It's an amazing thing. The Democrats run this city. Most of the people protesting and rioting, if they vote, they'll vote for Democrats. And Donald Trump is blamed. More on that later. I want to... I want to explain to you what's taking place in this country today. Relax, sit back. If you're in the car, just turn the radio up. This is going to take a little bit of time. And I turn to some of my own writings. I don't need to turn to the writings of others, as other hosts do. I write this stuff myself. But I want you to listen really carefully, because you're not going to get this anywhere else, but it put things in perspective. You hear things like, we have systemic racism, and we must eliminate systemic racism. 
Nobody knows what any of that means. But it doesn't matter. It's like we must eliminate income inequality. There must be environmental justice. Now, this is what the left does. Now, they're not to be measured by any standards. How many kids graduate from schools that they control, the criminal rates in the towns that they control, and on and on and on. By the way, let me just say here, I'm going to have Shelby Steele on my show on Sunday, as well as Bob Woodson, and yet, all right, I I won't comment any further. Just very frustrating. So let's begin. It's called, I call it utopianism. Utopianism is irrational in theory and practice, for it ignores or attempts to control the planned and unplanned complexity of the individual, his nature, and mankind generally. It ignores, rejects, or perverts the teachings and knowledge that had come before. Think about the 1619 Project and so forth. That is man's historical, cultural, and social experience and development. Utopianism substitutes glorious predictions and unachievable promises for knowledge, science, and reason, while laying claim to them all. If there's nothing new in deception disguised as hope, and nothing original in abstraction framed as progress, for the, a, a heavenly society is said to be within reach if only the individual surrenders more of his liberty. And being for the general good, meaning the good is prescribed by the state. If he refuses, he will be tormented and ultimately coerced into compliance. For conformity is essential. Indeed, nothing good can come of self-interest, which is condemned as morally indefensible and empty. I wrote this in 2012. Through persuasion, deceit, and coercion, The individual must be stripped of his identity and subordinated to the state. He must abandon his own ambitions for the ambitions of the state. He must become reliant on and fearful of the state. Utopianism also attempts to shape and dominate the individual by doing two things at once. It strips the individual of his uniqueness making him indistinguishable from the multitudes that form what is commonly referred to as the masses. But it simultaneously assigns him a group identity based on race, ethnicity, age, gender, income, etc., to highlight differences within the masses. It then exacerbates old rivalries and disputes, or it incites new ones. I hope you're listening. This way it can speak to the well-being of the people as a whole while dividing them against themselves, thereby stampeding them in one direction or another as necessary to collapse the existing society or rule over the new one. That's pretty precise on the mark, isn't it, Mr. Producer? Where utopianism is advanced through gradualism rather than revolution, albeit steady and persistent as in democratic societies. It can deceive and disarm an unsuspecting population, which is largely content and passive. It is sold as reforming and improving the existing society's imperfections and weaknesses, without imperiling its basic nature. Under these conditions, it is mostly ignored, dismissed, or tolerated, but much of the citizenry and celebrated by some. 
Transformation is deemed innocuous, well-intentioned, and perhaps constructive, but not a dangerous trespass on fundamental liberty. Sound familiar, ladies and gentlemen? Equality is not equality at all. It's a form of radical egalitarianism that has long been the subject of grave concerns of advocates of liberty. Equality is understood by the founders as the natural right of every individual to live freely under self-government, to acquire and retain the property he creates through his own labor, and to be treated impartially before a just law. And here's the deal. Equality can be more transparent at surface levels. It is posted as a far-off concept of human perfectibility, but is also delivered in bits and pieces, or at least appears to be, by the utopians. It usually takes the form of material rights delivered to the individual by the state. Therefore, equality and liberty are both subjects of utopian demagoguery and manipulation. Liberty is encouraged... If its end is equality, liberty by itself is not. In utopia, rule by masterminds is both necessary and necessarily primitive. For it excludes so much that is known to man and about man. The mastermind is driven by his own boundless conceit and delusional aspirations, which he self-identifies as a noble calling. He alone is uniquely qualified to carry out this mission. He is, in his own mind, a savior of mankind. If only man will bend to his will. Such can be the addiction of power. It can be an irrationally, egoistic, and absurdly frivolous passion that engulfs even sensible people. In this, the mastermind suffers from a psychosis of sorts and endeavors to substitute his own ambitions for the individual ambitions of millions of people. And the mastermind is served by an enthusiastic intelligentsia or experts professionally engaged in developing and spreading utopian fantasies. Although these are, there are conspicuous exceptions, longtime Harvard professor and political theoretician R.V. Mansfield explained the modern intellectuals have, quote, monumental impatience with human complexity and imperfection. They believe that politics is a temporary necessity until the rational solution is put in place. Of course, the rational solutions are not rational at all. While intellectuals are obviously smart, they're not smart enough to have conquered the social sciences and use them to rejigger society. They are posers to knowledge they do not and cannot possess. Centralizing and consolidating authority is required to replace dispersed decision-making with a command and control structure, the purpose of which is to coerce behavior in, in pursuit of fantasy, a dogmatic cause, or a false religion. That is not to say that knowledge and information from outside the central authority go without notice. Rather, it is collected <clears throat> excuse me, in a self-serving, haphazard, and incomplete way to tinker and adjust, to torment and control, but never as a mean to fundamentally challenge assumptions, reconsider policies, or disprove the utopian ends. How could it? Since utopianism rejects rationality and empiricism from the outset. It repudiates experience. It is said to be new, different, better, and bigger. Although the mastermind's incompetence and vision plague the society, 
Responsibility must be diverted elsewhere to those assigned to carry them out or to the people's lack of sacrifice or to the enemies of the state who have conspired to thwart the utopian cause. For the mastermind is inextricably linked to the fantasy. And if he is fallible, then who is the usher in paradise? If his judgment and wisdom are in doubt, then the entire venture might invite scrutiny. This leads to grander and bolder social experiments requiring further coercion. What went before is said to have been piecemeal and therefore inadequate. The steps necessary to achieve true utopianism have yet to be tried. There's also no morality in utopian deception and distortion to promote an abstraction, forcing the individual to behave in ways that are contrary to his best interests and destructive of his nature, attacking the civil society's ethical norms and social arrangements, and making commonplace dependency and coercion, rather than cultivating a moral society and individual virtuousness, whether through faith, education, or social ability, and building on the accumulated experience and wisdom of earlier generations. Utopianism breeds dishonesty, not good character. It encourages ideology, not reason. It rewards rashness, not reflection. It attracts fanatics, not statesmen. And it's transformative, not reformative. Clearly, utopianism is incompatible with constitutionalism. Utopianism requires power to be concentrated in a central authority with maximum latitude to transform and control. Oppositely, a constitution establishes parameters that define the form and the limits of government. For the mastermind, where the constitution is believed useful to utopian ends, it will be invoked. Where it is not, under the pretense of legitimate differences of interpretation, it will be abandoned outright or remade through various doctrinal schemes and administrative evasions. For the mastermind, the constitution words are as undeserving of respect as the rest of American history. They will be used to muddle and disarrange, not to inform and clarify. Moreover, the Constitution's authors, ratifiers, and present-day proponents will be dismissed as throwbacks. To follow them will be to renounce modernity and progress. And yet to follow the mastermind is to renounce the American finding and the American heritage. Utopianism is not new. It has been repackaged countless times since Plato and before. It is, an old, it is as old as tyranny itself. In democracies, its practitioners legislate without end. In America, laws piled upon law and contravention and contradiction of the governing law, the Constitution. But there are no actual masterminds who, upon election or appointment, are magically imbued with godlike qualities. There are pretenders with power, lots of power. And when they're not rebelling, they are dictating. But the ultimate objective is always the same, control over the individual in order to control society. They are adamantly committed to their abstraction and their accumulation of authority to pursue it, to devastating effect. I hope I didn't read that too quickly. That is chapter one of Ameritopia from 2012. That is exactly what's happening to this society. I'll be right back. in.
At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith, and their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. I want to pursue this further. You know, uh, I make a big mistake here when I try and promote the Sunday show and I mention who my guests are. Because what happens is I do a one-hour show on Sunday. I tape it late on Thursday because a lot of guests are not available on the weekends. And... Many of them aren't available on Friday evenings. So when I do that and another host is listening or on any channel or one of their producers is listening, they can beat me to the punch, even though I found the guest and so forth. And I'm, it's just very frustrating to me. But nobody does an interview like I do. And I hope you'll watch the Sunday show. 8 p.m. Eastern, assuming I'm not preempted for a potential thunderstorm uh, or a raining event. Uh, and I interview Shelby Steele, who's been on my show before, and Bob Woodson, who's been on my show before. Now, what I want to do is uh, talk about there are various types of utopianism. And they're all the same strain, you know, called democratic socialism, socialism, Fabianism, communism, Maoism. Trotskyism, Stalinism, all isms. Anyway, I'm going to talk about the one that is the at the center of what's taking place. Black Lives Matter. Kamala Harris tweeted to the President of the United States today, don't you dare let George Floyd's name cross your lips or come out of your mouth. Until you say black lives matter. Who the hell does she think she is? I'm not going to put up with this BS from anybody. Regardless of race, religion, or what the hell it is. People think they're going to bully us. And threaten us. And intimidate us. And talk to people like this. Again, regardless of race. This goes for white liberals. And white politicians. And all the rest. There's going to be pushback here at some point. People don't want to keep taking it in the nose. They're not going to. I'll be right back.
At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith, and their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion? All students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of the stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. Mark Levin, tough as hell. That's why I like Mark Levin. And I'm not sure a lot of people like him. He's tough as hell. But I like him. I love him. Call in now. 877-381-3811. Oh, some ex-generals have criticized the president. Oh, wow. Then I must disagree with the president wall street journal what a stupid editorial today and you'll see the wall street journal national review some of these others when they don't want to pin names actual names to their stupid editorials they just say editorial or staff it's the corporate position of the opinion page of the wall street journal general is acting poorly it's an amazing thing, trying to box the president in on what he can or cannot do. The president who's used the military, I would say, over the last several presidencies, in a more restrained way than almost any commander-in-chief. But he's the dictator. It's shocking. More on that later. Let me deal with Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and so forth. You're not going to hear this by my friend Stephen A. Smith on first take, and he is my friend. What's that other guy's name? Kellerman? Gax Kellerman. Now, he won't know anything about this. Drew Brees won't know about this. LeBron James won't know about this. It doesn't matter, but you will. For Marx and Engels, listen, it is crucial to sever all ties with the past. And again, you'd think of the 1619 Project. For the past is nothing more than a history of domination. This is still from Emeritopia. In one form or another, over the proletariat. In other words, the working people. In bourgeois society, the past dominates the present. In communist society, wrote Marx and Engels, the present dominates the past. Now, you have to understand the leadership of Black Lives Matter and Antifa and tenure professors. and They're Marxists. They're Marxist anarchists. Now, how can you be a Marxist anarchist? Because Marx said you must destroy the existing society. All of it. Religion, family, property rights. You must destroy it in order to remake it. You see the attacks on American monuments, even Lincoln. 
You see the attacks. Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Violent. Eliminate the police. They don't want to cut police budgets. Because they think that will improve policing in minority neighborhoods. They want to cut police budgets so there's less cops to confront them. I will never live in a city that cuts their, cuts their uh, police budget. In fact, I've decided I'll rarely even visit one unless I have to. Why should I? Marx and Engels go on. They attack specifically the Declaration. The selfish misconception that induces you to transform into eternal laws, in other words, laws of God, laws of nature and reason. The social form springing from your present mode of production and form of property. So he's attacking capitalism, like burning down stores. Historical relations that rise and disappear in the progress of production. The misconception you share with every ruling class that has preceded you. What you see clearly in the case of ancient property in other words, feudalism or for Black Lives Matter, you know, white man's property. What you see clearly in the case of ancient property, what you admit in the case of feudal property, you are, of course, forbidden to admit in the case of your own bourgeois form of property. So in other words, destroy all private property rights. Burn them down. Marxism is a very, very violent ideology. Very violent. They say, but you will say we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education by social. And your education, is it not also social and determined by social conditions under which you educate? By the intervention, direct or indirect, of society by means of schools? The communists have not invented the intervention of society and education, they do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. And you can see this throughout our universities and colleges. The bourgeois claptrap they write about the family and education, about the hollow correlation of parent and child, become all the more disgusting as by the action of modern industry, all family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder, in other words, the working people, and their children transform into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor. What else does the history of ideas prove than that intellectual production changes its character in proportion as material production is changed? The ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class. In other words, you must destroy the civil society private property rights in capitalism, including small businesses, wherever they may be, black-owned is of no consequence. You must control the educational system. You must teach, teach the hate for the past and the religious zeal for the future. That is exactly what's going on. And they couldn't be clear, quote, there are besides eternal truths such as freedom, justice, etc. that are common to all states of society. But communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion. Why do you think they were targeting churches and synagogues? It abolishes all religion and all morality instead of constituting them on a new basis. It therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. The history of all past society 
has consisted in the development of class antagonisms that assume different forms at different epochs. Listen to this. Marx and Engels. Now this is taught in our colleges and universities. The radical elements in the Democrat Party embrace this. As do the peaceful protesters. And they're looting, burning, brutalizing colleagues. All of whom, if they vote, will vote Democrat. None of them will vote Republican. Have you noticed that? These protesters and rioters are Democrats. Marx and Engels argue almost as an aside that, quote, of course, in the beginning, this cannot be affected except by despotic inroads. Despotic inroads on the rights of property and the conditions of bourgeois production. And they acknowledge that at least initially, There will be societal dislocation and misery. Quote, by means of measures, therefore, which appear economically insufficient and untenable, but which in the course of the movement outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the old social order, and are unavoidable as a means of entirely revolutionizing the mode of production. This is why this ideology is violent. When you look at its, its institution overseas, whether it's China or the old Soviet Union or Cuba or wherever it is, this is why deaths mount and mount and mount and mount. People are slaughtered in unimaginable numbers because this is the road to utopia. And individual human beings cannot get in its way. And this ideology has been used by racists and race baiters. It has been used by socialists. It has been used by very, very many radical environmentalists to dare down America, to attack its symbols, its its institutions, to smear the entirety of the society. One cop in Minneapolis... One. And Marx and Engels tolerated no half measures. In their denunciation of utopian socialism and communism as violently opposing all political action on the part of the working class, they demonstrate the fanaticism of their utopianism. After all, the half measures expose communism as not inevitable, impracticable, and impossible. So you must embrace it 100% right to the end. Nobody can stand in the way. No other opinions are tolerated. Is this coming a little bit more focused, Mr. Producer? And so when the Attorney General and Chiefs of Staff say Antifa and other left-wing groups are pushing the violence and it's dismissed by the media, no, that's the whole point. When the New York Times hires a woman who seeks to destroy the entire history of the United States and then pushes that ideology into our schools, this becomes a huge problem. And so it is. 
that I turn to another book. I don't need to turn to somebody else's articles or books, but there's been a lot of research done here, so why would I ignore my own? That's education in America. This is all linked. This is why I wrote one book to the next to the next. They're all linked. And this is plunder and deceit. Despite claims of academic freedom, like the public school system, post-secretary education is rife with ideological viewpoints of utopian statists. In 2011, over 62% of faculty members who teach full-time at undergraduate colleges and universities in America identified themselves as either liberal or far left on the political spectrum, a number that's increasing, up from 56% 12 years ago. In 2008, 47% of faculty members surveyed identified as liberal, while 8.8% identified as far left. Conversely, only 11.5% surveyed self-identified as conservative, just 0.4% as very conservative. This was down from 2008, when 15.2% accepted the title of conservative and 0.7% very conservative. So they're purifying the ranks of the faculty, you see. And as I pointed out, the status ideological orthodoxy is reflected not merely in the content of professorial lectures, but also in the coursework and textbooks selected by the professors. This is particularly prominent in, although certainly not exclusive to, classrooms where the humanities and social sciences are taught. Daniel Klein and Claretta Stern, in an article in the Independent Review, a journal of political economy, placed much of the blame for this groupthink at the feet of specific departments and department heads in these universities, which perpetuate an ideological closed-mindedness. They argue that the faculty in a given department is less governed by the zeitgeist of the larger institutional community than by the modus vivendi of the specific department, and more broadly, the profession in which it operates. The values of the individuals at the apex of that department usually dictate the standards and norms under which the rest of the faculty functions. In most office, this means that ideas or opinions that contradict those held by the leaders of the department are less likely to be published or even expressed openly by faculty. And tenure may also be offered or denied based on loyalty to the, to the predicates of the department. There's also an incestuous network of graduates from the top departments in different fields who hire fellow alumni as they move into the highest positions and departments at other colleges and universities. Klein and Stern cite a survey of the most prestigious 200 economics departments around the world. And they write, graduates from the top five departments account for roughly one-third of all faculty hired in other departments surveyed. The top 20 departments accounted for roughly 70% of the total. You understand? The vast majority of these faculty members are coming from a relative handful of Ivy League schools. And they don't get tenure unless they fall in line for the most part. Even worse, they write, of the 430 full-time faculty employed by the top 20 sociology departments, are only 7, less than 7%, received their PhDs from a non-top 20 department. In other words, outside the circle. In the field of law, Richard Redding finds a third of all new teachers hired in law schools between 96 and 2000 graduated from either Harvard or Yale. Another third graduated from other top 12 schools, and 20% graduated from other top 25 law schools. The enforcement of ideological groupthink extends beyond the faculty, too. 
College and university campuses are now among the least tolerant institutions for inquiry and debate. Too frequently, they accept or even encourage an atmosphere of discomfort, intimidation, or militancy in promotion of the status orthodoxy. The purpose is primarily political indoctrination of the sort that is hostile to the civil society and America's heritage. And toward this end, the campus and classroom atmosphere narrows the scope of what is considered legitimate thought or opinion, dismisses or derides more traditional viewpoints that challenge the status convention, and disregard outright the perspective of individuals who do not and are not identified members of a politically preferred group, either by birth or belief. Our society has been devoured institution by institution. That's what you're seeing in the streets. And the Democrat Party is the political engine through which it is occurring. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith. And their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Levinforhillsdale.com. So we've talked about utopianism, how destructive it is. It's embraced by fascists, by communists, by democratic socialists. It is embraced by the Democrat Party, which embraces all of these isms but never Americanism. It's a party born of slavery. It's a party that's defended slavery. It's a party that's born of segregation, defended segregation. And now, of course, they try and flip the script. But now it's still a party of tyranny, just a different type of tyranny. Not Americanism. Not individual freedom. But there's another very important piece of this, and I I want to get to it in the top of the next hour. I've given you the ideological umbrella. I've pointed to uh, Marxism to you, for you. And now I'm going to, I've pointed to what happens to our faculties. And next, the media. It's not a conspiracy, it's a fact. What's taking place in your society is a fact. You disarm the police, you disarm the American citizenry. If that's what Minneapolis wants to do, then don't go to Minneapolis. And if you live there, get the hell out of there. The major cities are destroying themselves. That's up to them. It's a big country. The problem is they try to enforce their will 
the radical leftists at the national level and all the rest of us and all the other parts of the country. This is where they need to be fought. Stick with me as I move into the next hour as it flows from issue to issue. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, The next piece that I want to discuss with you, and then we'll move on to other subjects, the media. So concerned have I been about the evisceration of our free press by the people who claimed to represent it, that I wrote an entire book on it, and I spent a big chunk of my life doing the research on that book. And almost 600,000 of you have read that book. So when you look at the school systems, colleges and universities, when you look at the tenured faculty, uh, that you and I pay for all this, through tuition and state and federal subsidies. And then when you look at the propaganda coming through your television screen or in the newspapers, it's the same thing. It comes out of the same ideology. And I don't have time to go through this entire book, but there's been a change in media, it was it was bad enough a hundred years ago when the progressives secreted themselves into the profession, but they don't even try to be objective anymore. None of them do. Really, none of them do. Well, a handful. So the the media is now the the uh, the propaganda wing of the Democrat Party, and the media promotes a progressive political and ideological agenda. That's what it does. If you watch CNN, it's 24-7. You watch MSNBC, it's 24-7. This is one of the reasons they so hate Donald Trump. It's not because Donald Trump is Barry Goldwater. It's not because Donald Trump is Ronald Reagan. It's because Donald Trump is a very strong presence. He won the presidency. He interrupted the revolution. And he's an extremely smart man. And while these never-Trumpers, many of whom are Bushites, many of whom are green-eye-shade types, but they're not serious conservatives, I can tell you that. What they are doing is they are contributing. You know, I've been watching this so-called Lincoln Project. They run the most uh, contemptible ads of all the groups. Because with them, it's personal. The Bill Crystal types. Who's that other fool? Oh, yeah, George Conway. Clearly, that guy hasn't missed a meal. And I should tell him it's three meals a day, not 30 meals a day. So 
There are many examples of the media's progressive political and ideological ideology, including endless studies and surveys illustrating its widespread existence. But your own two eyes and ears can tell you. But the evidence is often dismissed, denied, spun, or they act like they're righteous in what they're doing. But it's unequivocal. In fact, a growing number of in a growing number of circles, the ideological mission, this is unfreedom of the press, of news organizations and journalists is no longer subterranean. Their advocacy and mission are open and unambiguous. For example, there's a very influential leftist in uh, the circle of uh, journalism academia, and his name is New York University Professor Jay Rosen. A leading voice in the idea of so-called public or civic journalism, that's what they call themselves, that is the purpose-driven, community-based, social activism journalism movement that has spread throughout America's newsrooms for the last several decades. A harsh critic of then-candidate Donald Trump, Rosen wrote in the Washington Post, quote, Imagine a candidate who wants to increase public confusion about where he stands on things so that voters give up on trying to stay informed and instead vote with raw emotion. Under those conditions, does asking where do you stand, sir, serve the goals of journalism? Or does it enlist the interviewer in the candidate's chaotic plan? I know what you're thinking, journalists, he says. What do you want us to do, stop covering a major party candidate for president? That would be irresponsible. Well, true. But this reaction short-circuits intelligent debate. Beneath every common practice in election coverage, there are premises about how candidates will behave. I want you to ask, do these apply still? Trump isn't behaving like a normal candidate. He's acting like an unbound one. In response, journalists have to become less predictable themselves. They have to come up with novel responses. They have to do things they've never done. They may even have to shock us. They may need to collaborate across news brands in ways they have never known, which is exactly what they're doing. They may have to call Trump out with a forcefulness unseen before. They may have to risk the breakdown of decorum in interviews and and endure excruciating awkwardness. Hardest of all, they'll have to explain to the public that Trump is a special case and the normal rules do not apply. Well, obviously, every newsroom has embraced uh, this leftist, Professor Jay Rosen. That's in addition to whatever else they've been learning uh, that has sopped up the uh, sponge that is their brains. Now, Rosen and other like-minded... So there's been a revolution in so-called the profession of journalism. Rosen and other like-minded social activists of public and civic journalism reject the traditional standards and notions of a free press for instead a radical approach to reporting where the media become an essential instrument for the progressive movement. They borrow from the philosophy of, among others, sociologists Amatai and Tazani. And Tazani describes his approach as people committed to creating a new moral, social, and public order based on restored communities without allowing puritanism or oppression. Now this philosophy, Rosen's teachings and writings, and the practice of journalists throughout America's newsrooms, the latter unwitting and witting, essentially embrace a share Uh, and share the role of journalists set forth by one of the original 
progressive ideologues, John Dewey. He believed, and he's been quoted by these people, that the press should be used to advance the progressive agenda. Now, progressivism is, quite frankly, it's a soft form of Marxism. They'll never admit it, but I just explained to you some of Marxism. Among the things that Dewey wrote, liberalism must now become radical, meaning by radical perception of the necessity of thoroughgoing changes in the setup of institutions and corresponding activity to bring the changes to pass. For the gulf between what the actual situation makes possible and the actual state itself is so great that it cannot be bridged by piecemeal policies undertaken ad hoc. Sounds exactly like Marx. Can't have these piecemeal. And yet this particular John Dewey is crucially central to the progressive movement. Rosen insists, and he's, he's illustrative. This is all across journalism. Rosen insists on indoctrination and manipulation by media elites. He writes, if the public is assumed to be out there, more or less intact, look how they talk about you. Then the job of the press is easy to state, to inform people about what goes on in their name and in their midst. But suppose the public leads a more broken existence. At times it may be alert and engaged, but just as often it struggles against other pressures, including itself. They can win out in the end. Yes, Professor Rosen, I've read your books. I know exactly who you are. Inattention to public matters is perhaps the simplest of these. Atomization of society, one of the more intricate. Money speaks louder than the public. Problems overwhelm it. Fatigue sets in. Attention falters. Cynicism swells. A public that leads this more fragile kind of existence suggests a different task for the press. Not just to inform a public that may or may not emerge, but to improve the chances that it will emerge. And he cites, of course, John Dewey's 1927 book, The Public and Its Problems. And he seems to be referencing Dewey's views of news as providing meaning, the social consequences of the information. And Dewey wrote, news signifies something which has just happened, which is new just because it deviates from the old and regular. But its meaning depends upon relations to what it imports, to what its social consequences are. So then reporting events, you see, without a social context. In other words, liberalism. And the relationship to the past or part of of a continuum isolates them from their connections. Oh, I could go on and on. So basically, the press has been bastardized. It's just another tool, a massive tool, an army advancing a cause that is, in many respects, anti-Americanism, anti-constitutionalism, anti-capitalism. So you have this movement that is spread like a cancer throughout journalism. You have this movement that has spread through for some time. Colleges and universities and now public schools like a cancer. And also, you have this movement to beat you down. If you actually believe in, quote-unquote, the old ways. You know, like liberty. Then you must be destroyed. Not engaged, destroyed. 
Your character must be destroyed. You must be a person of white privilege. If you're not white, you must be an Uncle Tom or whatever it is. You must be verbally destroyed in the streets. You must be physically destroyed. Your institutions must be destroyed. Even a monument of Abraham Lincoln. Churches, synagogues must be desecrated. Almost a crystalloc type mentality, although they would deny it, of course. When I saw that rioting, when I saw people being dragged out of their cars, when I saw windows being broken, when I saw one man force a young woman to her knees to confess her racism, It reminded me of those old black and white movies from the 1930s. It certainly did. Look at the opportunism. Look at the exploitation. You have one incident. Caught on video. Where a black man is killed in cold blood. You have the system immediately pouncing. All four are now charged found guilty, they will never see the light of day outside of a federal prison or a state prison. Not good enough. Now we got to attack the system. That thin blue line, they know it's a thin blue line. If they can destroy the thin blue line, the country is theirs. There's no stopping them. And the same Democrat party that runs these cities and then destroys these police forces is the same Democratic Party that rejects the Bill of Rights when it comes to your right to peaceably assemble, your right to free speech, your right to own a weapon to defend yourself, your family, and your property. This is why the targeting of the Second Amendment is relentless. Anytime something goes wrong in this society, because of a killer, because of an actual racist or whatever, The entire system has to be brought down, you see. You can show statistics. We've talked about them, but let Daniel Horowitz was the first to dig them out from the Washington Post database. They don't matter. They don't matter. You've got players in the NFL who put out a video. Nothing I say are they going to hear. Not a word of it. Not a word of it. And they don't care. They don't wish to engage. They wish to preach. And demand. Look how they beat down Drew Brees. This is a Super Bowl quarterback who's got the most yardage of any quarterback in the history of the sport. And he has no say. None. So now something's wrong with you if you won't take a knee against your country. Something's wrong with you if you won't take a knee against the flag that's carried into warfare as I speak. Because that flag represents America. Well, you better take a knee. Otherwise, you must be a racist. On Instagram the other day, you must have a blacked out screen. Or you must be a racist. Or you must be this. Or you... That's how it works. That's how it works in Cuba. In Iran, the old Soviet Union, 
especially in China. If it's not race, it's something else. You must, you must surrender your free will, your ability to think. You must, or you'll be destroyed. Whether you're a student on a college campus, a professor that isn't part of the group think, whether you're a host on TV, if you're a football player, basketball player, baseball player, you must comply. Everyone must take a knee. You cannot say all lives matter because that is offensive to Black Lives Matter, the organization. So you can't be inclusive. That's offensive. That's racist. And look at the spectacle of Joe Biden. Joe Biden was a law and order Democrat. He was one of those responsible for the 1994 Criminal Justice Act, which I happen to support, but I guess I'm the only one these days. And now he talks about America being systemically racist, and now's the time to act. George Bush, president for eight years, America's systemically racist, now's the time to act. Barack Obama, president for eight years, America's systemically racist. They are liars, each and every one of them. America is not systemically racist. I'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Well, half the show is over, and it's too fast, so I need to move around. Wall Street Journal wrote an embarrassing editorial today, and you see people pointing to Mattis and Kelly and some of these other generals. These generals know exactly what they're doing. They want want you to vote for Joe Biden. Believe it or not, the Obama-Biden administration slashed and undermined the United States military. Donald Trump has built it up, and they want you to vote for Biden. Gee, I wonder... Do most of the rank-and-file active-duty military and National Guard, do they agree with that? Or are these generals out in left field? So we're supposed to really take their comments to heart. Let me tell you something. Are you familiar with the election of 1864, Lincoln's re-election? He was very concerned about losing. Do you know who he ran against? He ran against a general he fired. A general from New Jersey by the name of George B. McClellan. McClellan ran against Abraham Lincoln and lost in 1864 for the presidency, and he ran as a Democrat. 
I wonder what the Wall Street Journal editorial would have written back then. Ignore these generals. I'll be right back. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. America's most powerful conservative voice, The Mark Levin Show. Dial in now, 877-381-3811. Oh, I'm going to get into the economy in a minute. It's absolutely fantastic what's happening. It's, it's, it's made a complete turnaround as it moves towards uh, uh, the position it was in a few months ago. But I, I want to tell you a few things. I told you in 1864, a general that Lincoln had fired, McClellan, ran against him for president, got the nomination of a divided Democrat party. I want you to think about that. He had fought on the side of the Union, but now he was running as a Democrat and associated with the Confederacy. Uh, Even though this wasn't an election with the Confederacy, because the Confederate states were not free to participate in them. And I don't mean associated in a formal way. I mean, the Democrats were debating on how to handle this. Should we let the South go? Should we? But Lincoln won it all out victory in McClellan. Did not. John C. Fremont, you may know that he was the first nominee of the Republican Party in 1856 for President of the United States. Of course, he lost. Uh, Prior to that, he'd been a Democrat, but he was actually a very good uh, uh, soldier uh, in the uh, Mexican-American War. Putting that aside... Fremont jumped into the election, too, was thinking of running as a particular candidate for Biden. Then he would withdraw. That's two generals that wanted to run against Lincoln. Two generals he had fired. And so we're now supposed to embrace Mattis, not because his views as a general, but because his views as a citizen. And we're supposed to embrace John Kelly. And notice how immediately the president's enemy, whether they're never Trumpers or soft Trump supporters or, of course, the media, embrace these two generals. Why? Why are they so special when it comes to not their military history? I'm talking about their political views, their constitutional views. Why? Why are they so important? And Mattis's views are based on an, a big lie about what took place at Lafayette Park. Well, I want to tell you something else about what took place near Lafayette Park once. Believe it or not, this was in the Washington Post. It's just a fact. But it was three years ago. It would never be in there today because they don't want to remind you of actual history. You had World War I veterans who were desperate. It was the Depression, 1932. The commander-in-chief then, Herbert Hoover, he orders the army to confront them, 20,000 of them. General MacArthur. As Terrence McArdle wrote, The troops amassed on the ellipse right outside the White House. More than 200 soldiers on horseback, plus men on foot and five tanks. 
On July 28, 1932, at the command of General Douglas MacArthur, they marched down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Capitol to launch an attack on World War I vets. It was the height of the Great Depression. Nearly 20,000 unemployed vets had converged on Washington to demand bonus payments from Congress and President Hoover. Led by Walter W. Waters, a former sergeant from Oregon, they called themselves the Bonus Army or Bonus Expeditionary Forces, a nod to World War I's American Expeditionary Forces. Many saw the Bonus Army as heroes. The former servicemen were scattered throughout the city, but two camps stood out, a group squatting around buildings slated for demolition east of the Capitol on Pennsylvania Avenue, and a larger encampment in the Anacostia Flats, south of the 11th Street Bridge, in what is now Anacostia Park, a rival group, the Workers' Ex-Servicemen League. Communist vets at odds with Waters groups tended at 14th and D Street in southwest Washington. Hoover regarded the Pennsylvania Avenue encampment as an eyesore, no different from other Depression shantytowns that his critics dubbed Hoovervilles. But there was a pretext to drive them out. The, abandonment, the abandoned buildings were slated to be raised to make way for new construction in downtown Washington. On July 28, 1932, Washington Police Chief Pelham Glassford, who had served as a brigadier general in World War I and donated food and lumber to the Bonus Army, ordered Waters to evacuate the Pennsylvania Avenue camp by 10 a.m. He roped off the area that surrounded the buildings, wrecking cranes parked nearby. The evicted veterans began leaving quickly, then an angry group burst through the ropes. They hurled rocks and bricks. One of them hit a police chief in the chest. Soon truckloads of veterans streamed across the 11th Street Bridge from the Anacostia. The chief mobilized 500 officers. In the melee that followed, one veteran grabbed a policeman's nightstick. The officer, George Chinot, drew his gun and shot and killed two veterans. As the ambulances carried the fatally wounded men away, a St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter told the chief that troops were massing on the eclipse. Unbeknownst to Glassford, MacArthur had drawn up a plan to quell domestic rebellion. Accompanied by his aide and future president, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower, MacArthur had a contingent of troops at Fort Myer and Fort Washington alert. At 1.50 p.m., Major George S. Patton ordered his cavalry to saddle up. There's MacArthur, Eisenhower, and Patton. General Mattis and General Kelly. Glassford rode his motorcycle to the Eclipse and asked MacArthur to give the veterans more time to disperse. For two hours, the veterans stood their ground. At 4 p.m., more than 200 soldiers on horseback, sabers drawn, descended on Pennsylvania Avenue from 15th Street and headed toward the Capitol. They jabbed at everyone in their path, veterans and bystanders alike. The infantry followed, donning gas masks and lobbing tear gas. The tanks rolled behind the cavalry. With brutal efficiency, they cleared the Pennsylvania Avenue camp, then headed for the communist encampment. Tanks rolled over shacks, occupants sent fires, then ran with belongings. At 9 p.m., MacArthur ordered his men to march to Anacostia. According to Paul Dickinson and Thomas H. Allen in their book, The Bonus Army, an American Epic, the White House sent General George Van Horn Mosley with a written message that the president did not want the Anacostia camp evacuated. MacArthur ignored the message. At 11 p.m., tanks blocked access to the bridge and the troops raised the 11th Street drawbridge. No one could enter or leave. They surrounded them. A National Guard unit turned a searchlight in pitch-dark camp. 
As people panicked, the infantry entered and lobbed tear gas. Moving down the, ro- down the rows of huts, the soldiers lit folded up newspapers and systematically torched the dwellings. Hearst columnist Bess Furman, witnessing the scene from nearby Haynes Point, described a blaze so big it lighted the whole sky, a nightmare come to life. At midnight, MacArthur held a news conference while the president was in bed. It sounds like it, uh, Secretary Esper. And accused the Bonus Army of subversion. They had come to the conclusion that they were going to take over the government in an arbitrary way or by indirect means. The next day, the Washington Post carried a banner headline in capital letters. One slain 60 heard as troops rout BEF with gas bombs and flames. Newsreel showed the military with tanks routing unarmed veterans. To many, the action confirmed a view of Hoover as cold-hearted and detached from reality. Reading a New York Times account, Democratic presidential candidate Franklin Delano Roosevelt told his aide, future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, well, Felix, this will elect me. Politicians had debated this bonus, but the bonuses for years. During World War I, Wilson gave extra payments to civilian government workers to help offset inflation, but offered no comparable payments to the military. 1924, Congress agreed to what veterans called the tombstone bonus. Uh, payments couldn't be uh, redeemed until 1945. As President Roosevelt opposed making the uh, bonus immediate, arguing that they would be inflationary. But Congress overrode his second veto in 1936. And it goes on. A grand jury ruled the police acted in self-defense in killing those two veterans. Both men were buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I look at our history. Whether it's the invocation of the Insurrection Act by presidents as recently as George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush, in matters, as it turns out, with the George H.W. Bush's case, which aren't even close to the riots that we've experienced in numerous, country, uh, numerous cities, or Harry Truman using the Insurrection Act to put down the railroad strike, And I look at how the media has treated this president. And these ex-generals should be embarrassed. They're a disgrace. Do you see what I mean when I say Donald Trump has used power more prudently and frankly more passively than any recent president in American history? But if you'd listen to our media, you wouldn't believe it. He's called Hitler. He's called a dictator. We're called neo-Nazis and white supremacists. I spent the first hour, hour and a half of this program explaining why uh, these institutions have been poisoned and bastardized by an ideology and by the individuals who now run them. But Donald Trump hasn't done anything close to what past presidents have done. Nothing. And I want you to keep something else close in mind. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one of the most dictatorial presidents, if not the most dictatorial president in American history. And the people in the media, the people in academia, 
and others love him. They think he was magnificent. The fact that he rounded up 120,000 Japanese and Americans of Japanese descent gets a pass. The fact that he turned the St. Louis back where two-thirds of the people on that boat were sent to concentration camps and were exterminated, he gets a pass. The fact that he, along with the Washington Post and the New York Times, did the best they could to cover up the Holocaust, they get a pass. The fact that they used the FBI and the IRS to go after their political opponents and a number of publishers, he gets a pass. Donald Trump hasn't done any of these things, General Mattis. General Kelly, you may not like him. You may not like the way he he managed you. But to do what you're doing now disgusts me. And I guarantee it disgusts the vast majority of the men and women who served under you and who serve in the military today. Pathetic. It truly is pathetic. You know, folks, write this down. Blindster.com. That's Blindster.com. And I'm really glad I found Blindster.com, the best window treatment company there is anywhere. I even went to Blindster.com, placed our second order, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to measure and install blinds. And they're beautiful. So look, if I can do it, I guarantee you, you can do it. Blindster.com founder Kyle Cox is a great personable guy. He's a family man small businessman, and he's setting the new standard for customer service. Kyle and his team are so confident you can do it yourself that if for any reason your blinds don't fit, even if you didn't measure correctly, Blindster will remake the blinds in the different size needed. Free of charge, you only pay shipping. If you can use a tape measure and a screwdriver, you can install the highest quality custom shades, shutters, blinds, and save a bundle. So go to Blindster.com right now. Get 50% off by using my promo code Mark at checkout. That's Blindster.com, promo code Mark. Blindster.com, promo code Mark. Now, before we go to the break, since these multimillionaire athletes insist on getting in our face, then I'm going to insist on responding to them, at least in general. Why don't you go back to these communities you came from and live there? I don't understand. Why don't you go back to these communities you came from and live there and contribute as public citizens and spend your money in these communities and buy homes in these communities and shop at the local grocery store? Why won't you live there? Now, here's the truth that sportcasters won't tell you. Even one of my buddies will never tell you. When you're a star athlete, when you're the best athlete, you're treated like a king. If you're a woman, you're treated like a king in high school, in college, and really for the rest of your life. You're not hurting for a damn thing. You're not hurting for a damn thing. And at least up until now, you go into these stadiums, people cheer you, people love you. All kinds of people. Black, white, women, men, gay, straight, whatever. You're held up as an icon in this culture, in this society. An icon. 
You have no effect on me whatsoever when you put out these videotapes. None whatsoever. I want to hear from the people who live in these communities, but I don't want to hear from you. We heard from you, LeBron James, when the people of Hong Kong were being brutalized, and you opposed free speech because you have a massive deal with Nike, which has a massive deal with China, and you guys wanted to get into China. You're no civil rights leader. You're no spokesman for civil rights, and you're not alone. Charles Barkley, Steve Curry. Matter of fact, I'll say it. The vast majority of you, not all of you, but the vast majority of you are hypocrites and frauds. I'll be right back. By the way, I make little notes to myself during the break as I think about this. As a matter of fact, General Mattis and General Kelly, think about this, folks. Lincoln spoke to Grant as his re-election was coming up. And he said to Grant, I need a, we need a victory so I don't lose. Because Lincoln thought he might lose. He said, I need a victory. So Grant calls in Sherman and Sheridan, but in this case I'm talking about Sherman. And he tells Sherman, and by the way, it was crucially important that they do this anyway, but he moved it up. He said, we need, we need to take out their, uh, their last supply lines here. So he ordered Sherman to take Atlanta in what's famously called the Battle of Atlanta. And he did. And he, and he did more, which he needed to do to, to win the war. Now that said, that certainly ensured Lincoln's victory. Can you imagine... What an Adam Schiff or Chuck Schumer or, or Pelosi would do with that. That would be an impeachable offense, right? Can you imagine what, judge, uh, what uh, retired General Mattis or Kelly would say that he's using the military for political purposes? I mean, can you imagine? Trump, despite the facts from the U.S. Park Police, despite the facts from the Attorney General of the United States, Trump didn't clear out Lafayette Park for a photo op. And, and, the, and here's the irony. Joe Biden's doing photo ops all the time. Summer is finally here, ladies and gentlemen. A summer like no other in so many ways. And Chaminade celebrating with you uh, with a sale like no other. Right now, get the classic Genesel for bags and puffiness. And the jawline treatment and Chaminade will double your order for free. Whether you're staying home, going back to work, or simply connecting remotely with your loved ones and coworkers. Now's the time to say goodbye to puffiness, dark spots, crow's feet, and even firm up the delicate skin around the jawline and neck areas. Your next Zoom or FaceTime will feel better, guaranteed. You'll get compliments or simply get 100% of your money back. It's time for you to emerge strong, positive, confident, and beautiful. Go to Genesel.com or call 800-SKIN-604. For results in minutes, the Genesel immediate effects is also free, plus free shipping. Get double your order free right now. Genesel.com or 800-SKIN-604. 800-SKIN-604. We've got a powerful final hour of the week. Don't miss it. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.
Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. When these terrific job figures came out, because they show an enormous reversal on the economy towards a very, very positive several months and quarters. I tweeted out, a vote for Trump is a vote for jobs. A vote for Biden is a vote for mobs. A vote for Trump is a vote for jobs. A vote for Biden is a vote for mobs. It's the truth. Now, one of the things is the media trying to turn this into racism. But first, the facts. The so-called experts believe that the unemployment rate would increase from anywhere from about 9% to potentially, excuse me, 9 million to potentially 10 million. But it didn't increase. It decreased by 2.5 million. Nobody saw this coming except the president who's been saying over and over and over again that the economy is going to turn around. And you, the people, you, the people, all colors, all stripes, all backgrounds, all religions, all genitalia, you made this happen. Not the protesters, not the rioters in the streets, not the media. They all opposed it. The media fought you when you said enough is enough. But then they focus on this. Well, except for African Americans, where unemployment went up to 16.8%. So I took a look. And they didn't add this number. It went from 167 to 16.8%. Then I looked a little bit deeper at the Bureau of Statistics numbers. And here's what it says. When you look at the hard numbers, the number of blacks employed increased from 16,240,000 in April to 16,523,000 in May. Now, I'm not an expert at math, but that my calculation is that's an increase of 283,000 jobs, an increase for African Americans. As a percentage, statistically, it went from 16.7 to 16.8. But that's not what they're saying. You have this, this uh, woman from National Pubic Radio, Alcinder, I can't remember her first name, who just, she's not a reporter. Perhaps she's part of the uh, Antifa movement. I don't know. Might as well be. But she's definitely... Take a notes from Professor Jay Rosen that her job is to advance social activism. Not, you got Trump, you can't actually be objective about stuff. You got to advance social activism. 
And she says to the president, well, what about black unemployment and, and Asian unemployment? See, this is the thing. Those questions were never asked of Obama. What about black unemployment and Asian unemployment and only white employment's going up? You must be sort of a, uh, a, a white supremacist. Well, you can't be that. But you understand. So these are fantastic numbers. Fantastic. Black unemployment rate went from 16.7 to 16.8. I just explained the hard numbers to you. Hispanic unemployment rate decreased from 18.9 to 17.6%. Why don't they tell you that? Asian unemployment went up from 14.5 to 15%. Now, Asian Americans are hated by our Ivy League schools. You know why? Because of the, the, the family structure, the education structure, the uh, traditions in that particular culture and community. They do extremely well in school. They get very high grades, as a group, very high grades, very high SATs. But Harvard doesn't want to let in too many Asian Americans. I can't have too many. But I noticed that the NPR reporter never mentioned that. The white unemployment rate decreased from 14.2 to 12.4%. Terrific. Overall, terrific. I mean, that is a reversal of 11.5 million. It's really remarkable. And Trump gets the credit for this. He fought the Democrats to, to, to... Institute certain policies. He wants to institute additional policies. They just want to keep spending money, and we know why. Bought and paid for, that's why. And the American people. Now, the media and the Democrats are very glum tonight. They're glum to see people working. They're glum to see small businesses opening. They're very glum about this. They were so worried about the coronavirus, they were attacking these protesters. Using racist canards against these protesters. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the peaceful protesters, never once did they say, hey, why aren't they wearing masks? Why aren't they six feet apart? Why aren't they this? Why aren't they that? Don't they care about the elderly? Don't they care about... Never! Not a word! Because extremism in pursuit of Democrat victories, ripping off slightly Barry Coldwater, knows no vice. Knows no vice. Now, these reporters are a joke. They hate civil liberties, unless, of course, they're exercised by people they support. I want to remind you. Go down memory lane with Jake Tapper of CNN. Craig Melvin of MSNBC. Gail King of CBS. Scarborough of MSNBC. Just listen. Because if they had succeeded, there'd be more devastation and poverty in this country. But I'm telling you right now, those of you on the fence, and I can't even believe those of you who are, are, you're getting splinters up there. Anyway, the fact of the matter is, there's one man in this race that's coming up who supports creating jobs and another man who supports massive centralized government. And by the way, Joe Biden views you as racist. If there's systemic racism in there, that means we're all racist. And he also said today that 10 to 15% of us aren't very good people. So that's 40 to 50 million of us. You know, this guy's a POS. That's what I said. He's a POS. You're going to call us this? 
the greatest people on the face of the earth, who feed half the world and protect the other half? You jerk. Anyway, let's go on. Here's Jake Tapper, cut 14, May 3, 2020. Go. These protests came after President Trump uh, tweeted, uh, liberate Michigan. He tweeted, quote, the governor of Michigan should give a little, put out the fire. Uh, He said that these are very good people uh, about the protesters um, that were featured in the video, to which the executive director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, Haley uh, Sofer, who is from Lansing, Michigan, she compared those comments to President Trump referring uh, to those marching alongside neo-Nazis in Charlottesville as very fine people. Is that how you see these protesters, in, in that vein, in that extreme? Look, look how, what a slimeball this guy is. Look at what an absolute slimeball this guy is. Craig Melvin, May 5, the Today Show, NBC, Cut 15, go. I want to talk to you about these demonstrators that I saw uh, over the weekend uh, in your state capitol. Um, a number of them armed Uh, I remember vividly a few years ago being in Ferguson, Missouri, and protesters there, uh, many of them uh, protesting. They weren't all. Tell me, tell me, uh, Craig, uh, how many people did they shoot? How many people did they brutalize, beat to a pulp? How many buildings did they burn? How many windows did they break? You're going to apologize to these people now, Craig? Of course you're not. You're another jackass. Go ahead. To his thugs, uh, these men and women... Uh, many of them uh, carrying flags, walking around with their guns in your state capitol, not adhering to social distancing. Oh, not adhering to social distancing. I guess if the rioters adhered to social distancing and broke windows and burned down buildings, uh, they'd be more PC, wouldn't they? Go ahead. Orders. Um, they would appear to be in violation of a, a number of laws. Why weren't they arrested? All right, what a moron. What a complete... I just want you to hear these people. They're your media. Then there's Gail King on CBS. I think she's the best friend of Oprah Winfrey, right? This is uh, CBS This Morning, May 15th. Cut 16, go. There are growing concerns this morning over who is turning out for demonstrations against public safety measures in the coronavirus crisis. Protesters swarmed Michigan State Capitol again yesterday over statewide stay-at-home orders. Some of them had guns, big guns. And they didn't use them. I got big guns, too. I got all kinds of guns. You know, I just count the amount of uh, rounds I have, Mr. Producer. I have 2,500 rounds. Lots of bullets, lots of guns. I wouldn't hurt the hair on anybody's head. I'm not burning anything down. Go ahead. Governor says she's concerned about possible racist elements among the crowd. Eureka oh, Duncan reports on what some say is a pattern of very unsettling incidents. Were you concerned about unsettling incidents and racist elements in the riots, Gail King? Of course not. Those are Democrats. Democrats. The end of every one of their speeches. It's vote Democrat. Al Sharpton at the funeral. Al Sharpton is a Democrat hack. Al Sharpton knows something about riots. He was involved in one, as I recall. That's all right. He's Al Sharpton. MSNBC hired him. By the way, you know who else MSNBC just hired, Mr. Producer? You ready for this, America? Lisa Page was hired by NBC and MSNBC as a national security and legal analyst. Does that not rub right in your nose the tyranny of these networks? And then finally, probably the most loathsome of the bunch, 
Mr. Deliverance himself, Joe Scarborough, May 24th, cut 17, go. When you see as many Americans coming together as they did to bend the curve, uh, you suddenly realize that pictures of of people uh, carrying uh, come on, talk, you idiot, military-style weapons and screaming and yelling and abusing law enforcement officers. Oh, are- <laughs> oh, Joe's worried about that. Just like the other morons that sit around that table in a circle liberal fest. Oh yeah, he's worried about the cops. Worried about the threats to the cop. They didn't hurt a single cop. Not one. And they have a Second Amendment right to carry those weapons. The issue is how you use them. They didn't burn anything down. They didn't brutalize anybody. They didn't grab a puppy by the neck and kill it. They didn't do any of those things, Joe. You are a slime ball of the first order. All of you. All of you who I just played and all the rest of them. You do a grave disservice to this country. Grave disservice. You are the enemy of the people. The president is right. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. So the mayor of Washington, D.C. can't run the schools, can't keep the streets safe, can't keep the streets clean. Can't run a uh, balanced budget. But man, she knows how to tell people how to paint. And so, in the biggest letters possible, right behind Lafayette Square, right in front of the old church, St. John's Church, Black Lives Matter. She has them paint on the street. Of course, that's not a photo op. That's okay. That's cool. Black Lives Matter. Now, if you don't support the organization, something's wrong with you. I mean, Kamala Harris made it quite clear. She told Trump, do not, do not speak the name George Floyd unless you first speak the name Black Lives Matter. I don't give a damn what Kamala Harris has to say. I don't give a damn what football players have to say, what basketball players have to say, what baseball players have to say. They are so out of touch with every community in this country. I don't give a damn what Hollywood has to say. 
These are people in the top one-tenth of one percent of society. And they're all victims. White, black, brown, they're victims. Why don't they get off their asses and go into these communities and now help these store owners who've lost everything? When will they be doing that? No, no, no. We got a video to put out here, man. Okay. Oh, okay. Everybody's up for the fight now. The system. Not me. I stand with the cops. Because the number of instances of systemic racism, as they call it, is so minimal as to be virtually non-existent. Well, Mark, that's because you're not in the community. I'm hearing this from people who aren't in the community. Who aren't in the community. Some people are just upset. They don't like cops. Well, you know what? Let me tell you something. We have these human experiments going on now in these Democrat cities, and they're going to rule the day. Because these same incompetent ideological buffoons that have destroyed these cities are going to destroy them even further. And the people in these cities are going to suffer. So I don't need lectures from millionaires and athletics and millionaire sportscasters and millionaire members of Hollywood and members of Congress who've never been more distant than the people they're supposed to represent. I'm not taking a knee for the Democrat Party, for a Marxist ideology, for trashing the cops, for trashing the military. Not me. I salute when I see the flag. These cultural figures, they're not heroes. They're not heroes. They're living in the lap of luxury. Ironically, they've demonstrated how to get rich and how to be in in other types of communities. Doesn't matter. This is America, whether they like it or not. And unlike many of them, I do not judge people by the color of their skin. And Black Lives Matter doesn't believe in all Black Lives Matter. I pointed that out several days ago. They only believe the lives of revolutionary blacks matter. They didn't protect a single store owner. They didn't protect a single person in any of these communities. Not one. No marches against the African Americans who've been killed as a result of this riot. A riot thing. What isn't the NFL... Or the rest of athletics. Why don't they put out a video about that? Of course they won't. It's not cool. So many ways we live a lie in this country. We really do. Well, count me out. And you're going to watch all these liberals, white and black, in these cities. If they can get the hell out, they're going to get the hell out. These cities now are dead. Go ahead and defund your cops. What if the cops don't show up tonight? What are you going to do, mayors, city councilmen, when they come for you? And rather than attacking innocent citizens, maybe they should. I'll be right back. 
AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Levin Show, where the Reagan Coalition meets every day. Call now, 877-381-3811. Well, it is a pleasure to have Senator McSally with me. How are you, Senator? I'm good, Mark. How are you? I'm doing lovely, like everybody else, I suppose. You have a hit book out there. First of all, I want you to tell me about it and the nation. And then secondly, I want the nation to know what the New York Times did with your book. Go right ahead. Uh, well, thanks. It's called Dare to Fly, and uh, you can get it on daretofly.us. And I share my some unique stories of flying fighter jets in combat. I was the first woman in U.S. history to do that. Uh, six deployments, 325 combat All hours. All right, slow down, slow down right there. Slow down. I mean, yeah. that is a big deal. So slow down right there. What kind of jet did you fly? I flew the A-10 Warthog. It's oh, yeah. Bad, bad. Can I, I don't know if I can use the other word. You were going to say plane. badass, weren't you? I was going to say badass plane with a big gun, yeah. uh, single seat, no two-seat models, no simulators. So I take you inside of the cockpit of the A-10 for my first ever takeoff and some complex missions in Afghanistan, uh, supporting American troops on the ground. And I talk about overcoming fear in, in some of these chapters because – Maybe your listeners can't relate to flying jets, but we can all relate to when I was cleared for takeoff that first day, and I had to learn how to take off a freight, right? I had, to, I had to push past my fear in order to meet my destiny, and I share my perspectives on how anybody, man or woman, any age, you know, can build their own courage. Sometimes they think we all were born with courage. We weren't. We have to train, you know, to, to learn how to do things afraid. So I share combat missions and other things on that. I talk about taking on the Pentagon in an eight-year battle when they were making our service women wear burqas over in Saudi Arabia, oh, taxpayer-funded burqas. And, you know, don't walk by a problem. I share some lessons and how you can do the next right thing. Um, you know, I share about going through some, you know, pain and adversity in my own life, losing my dad when I was 12, and, and, and just the path of, of finding my own destiny. He told me to make him proud before he died, but losing friends uh, in the military and, and how I was able to find my own faith. Uh, through that, how God mm-hmm. carried me through it and, and my own my own journey for my own destiny and just, you know, being an encouragement to the reader in their own journey, in their own adversity, in their own pain, and how they find that strength and resilience. And so there's lots of unique stories in there, but very common human experiences of how to thrive out of the darkness and, and uh, you know, 
fix things that are wrong and make them right, you know, and, uh, and, and, and get through your own adversity. I want to be the wingman to the reader uh, through my own stories so I can encourage them in their own path. You can go to daretofly.us and be encouraged and share your own stories with me. That's the cool thing on our website. Well, let me, let me tell my audience where we, where we gather often. Go to Mark Levin Show. Yeah. Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. We have linked to your book, to Amazon. Great. I want to strongly encourage you to get this book. You're a remarkable person, apart from being a senator. This is a remarkable book. You have a remarkable background. Tell everybody why you decided to go into the military. Well, uh, my dad passed away when I was 12. And, uh, you know, he's a classic American dream. He, he started working at age of eight, eight. He lost his dad when he was before he was born, his mom, when he was a teenager. And through people believing in him and hard work and serving the military, he made a better life for us kids. But when he died at age 12, one day we were there on the beach, and the next day he was gone. It turned oh, my life wow. upside down. Mm-hmm. And my mom's now a single mom, five kids, you know, going back to school, back to work. I was looking for an opportunity to do something meaningful with my life, to not saddle my mom with debt. And I'm feisty. You probably figured that out. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to challenge my spirit into something purposeful. I probably couldn't have said that at 17, but that was really the path, you know, God was pushing me on. And I thought I was going to be a doctor, actually. But when I got there, I found out that just because I was a girl, I couldn't be a fighter pilot. It just made me mad. And I was like, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And 26 years later, you know, I retired as a colonel. And it really is a terrific and inspiring book. And the book is Dare to Fly. You can get it on Amazon.com. I want to encourage you to get it. It's a great read for this weekend. Now, another question I have for you, this Senate race you're in. The oh, we media- the New York Times screwing me, but yeah. <laughs> I, I want to get to that. But the media <laughs> okay. are out to defeat you. They're out to yeah. defeat you in much of Arizona. They've yeah. got their narrative going in there. They're promoting this guy, Kelly, um, yep. for the Senate. Uh, he has a bit of a lead right now. If people in this audience want to hold this seat, want you to win, uh, want to keep a majority in the Senate, what do they do? Where do they go? They need to go to McSally4Senate.com and contribute, Mark. I'm ground zero to make sure that we hold the Senate majority. Arizona is still right of center. President Trump is going to win Arizona. We have to win Arizona. I have been hit with $50 million of attacks trying to pin me to the mat for the last three years with Schumer and the liberal outside groups. And they've been propping my opponent up with tens of millions of dollars. It, it's ridiculous what the, the mismatch has been. We used to say as fighter pilots, you know, you know you're over the target when you're getting flack. They know it's relevant, and they are absolutely trying to ensure that they have Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden in charge. And we've got to stop that from happening. Uh, we've got to win Arizona. Chuck Schumer is going to have to pry that Senate majority out of my cold, dead hands. But I need your help. I need fuel in the tank uh, because we're being outspent by now, like significant amounts right now. And we've got to get our message out and get the ground game. We're working very closely with President Trump and his team to make sure we bring it home. But we need the resources. Thank you. Let's go ahead and uh, post that on my social sites, uh, Mr. Bader. Those are my private social sites, and I post awesome. whatever the hell I want to. Thank you, Mark. Uh, now, I want to get, turn back to the New York Times. You know, I've had a lot of bestsellers, and I've noticed this. I have to be way out ahead. I mean, like 30,000 sales in front of the number two guy, or the New York Times is going to screw a conservative. Now, what happened yeah. to you? Well, we debuted my book uh, the day after Memorial Day. Last week was our first week, and we sold 10,700 books. And the list came out. 
and I didn't make the list. And the bottom of the list sold 2,200 books. It was a Democrat who told, sold 2,200 books. So once again, they've done it to you. They did it to Don Jr. They've done it to Ted Cruz. Because I'm a conservative woman who wants to get my story out in my words and encourage people at a difficult time, once again, they're trying to keep it from the American people, the story that I have, the message that I have, just because I'm a Republican, just because I'm a conservative. It's ridiculous. You know what's funny? If you were tweeted about my book this week. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great book. And the hell with the New York Times. It's a great book. You know, if you were a liberal who, who had oh your service trashing America, they'd be talking about you as a vice presidential candidate to dimwit. <laughs> That's me saying that. You don't have to say that. Um, but they, they would. It's just a matter of, of philosophy. It's, Mark, in my whole time in the military, they, the media loved me. Oh, I'm a pioneering woman, you know, commanding, breaking barriers. I sued the Pentagon, you know. Oh, they loved it until I became a Republican candidate for Congress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of exactly. a sudden, the media is not so interested anymore. <laughs> the book is Dare to Fly. It really is a, a fascinating book. Um, and you know what else you don't do? You don't whine. You fight. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, honestly, I, I come from a family with a strong mother, a strong grandmother. They wear their own businesswomen, small businesswomen. Never wanted a handout, never talked about the privileges. Mm-hmm. They said, I can do this, and they just did it. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. you did. So I can do this. But you had to overcome a lot of opposition, didn't you? I did, yes. I mean, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of bureaucratic opposition, a lot of, you know, people who didn't think, you know, girls should be fighter pilots. And I mean, yeah, but I'm not complaining about it. It was the honor of my life to serve in the military, to command men and women in combat, to be over the top of Americans in a canyon in Afghanistan. I tell this story in the book where all my systems fail, but like I was, I was their angel overhead to provide their air support, and I had to deliver that firepower. I would do it in a second again. I've had some challenges for sure, but they made me stronger, like Joseph in the scripture. You know, what others intended for evil, God used for good, and it propelled me on a path for my own purpose uh, so that I could be continuing to serve and fighting for our freedoms and our way of life at this moment. I don't have another minute, but I must confess, I never wanted women fighter pilots until I heard about you, until I read your book. And I said, wait a minute. If she can do it, she should do it. Thanks, Mark. So uh, you make us very I proud. I'm being honest about that. Thanks. Hey, well, you know, patriots come in, uh, you know, both genders, right? And so uh, the, the, the plane didn't care if I was a boy or a girl. That's and, right. And uh, just care if you flew well and shoot straight. So, as long uh, as you knew how those 50 calibers work. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, it's been a pleasure, Senator. I wish you that. And we want you back before the election. We want you to win. Absolutely. We have to win. It's the future of the country is at stake, and we cannot let Arizona turn. So I need everybody's help. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for fighting for freedoms, and thanks for fighting for our country, Mark. I really appreciate it. Well, God God bless you. Thank you for your service. The book is Dare to Fly, Amazon.com. If you're on my sites tonight or this weekend, Mark Levin Show, Facebook, Mark Levin Show, Twitter, we're linking to it there. I'm telling you, you're going to like it. It's a great book if you have a daughter. On, and, uh, but anybody, it's really a terrific book. We'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. 
More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. of you would switch places with these athletes who are uh, making these videos? I think almost all of you, right? Or these people in Hollywood? Or these broadcasters? How many of you would switch places with the people who own these stores that are burned down, or the people who have been brutalized? 99.3% of broadcast networks' protest coverage ignores mobs, murder victims. This is from the great newsbusters that look at all of them. ABC News has had 200 minutes, 91 seconds. CBS News, 201 minutes, 61 seconds. NBC, 309 minutes, 132 seconds. You see, all black lives don't matter. When it comes to school choice and the left and the Democrat Party and these mayors and these governors, black lives don't matter. Unbelievable. We're not going to end the show with the national anthem on Fridays. We're going to end the shows we always do on Fridays with America. Look, folks, you're going to see more of this stuff on the weekend because the more people march, the more they know there's television attention. Colleges are closed. Universities are closed. There's still a lot of people around the cities who are unemployed, and so they'll fill the streets to tell you that you are part of the systemic racism in America. Love your country. Embrace it. There's only one like it.
don't forget Life, Liberty, and Levin this Sunday. We haven't been on the air for two weeks running. Hopefully this Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's a very, very important show, and I know you're going to enjoy it. 8 p.m. this Sunday. You can DVR if you can't hear it live. We salute our armed forces, police officers. Be safe this weekend. God bless you. Emergency personnel and all you people who are protecting us, thank you. Good night, Spritey. Good night, Griffey. Good night, Pepsi. Good night, Smokey. Good night, Zelda. Good night, Gigi. And my beloved Barney. Think of you all the time. Good night, brother. And good night, Dad, Mom, and Leo. God bless you, Leo. I'll see you on Monday. Be safe. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. 